Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, hello, I'm Arch-Chancellor Ridkali, and this is Kill My Darlings, an interactive fantasy writing podcast. Start talking, and we'll see if I start listening. Hello, I'm Hayden Rogers, and this week we're finally talking about schools of magic. What do I mean by that? Well, not schools as in education, but rather specializations or genres, the different terms and meanings of different kinds of magic. I think I've mentioned a few times now that this episode has been coming. I think for me, this is one of the major missing pieces left to discuss in the big picture of what magic is in Whipworld. But first, the comment section. Maybe that's what I should call this as like a segment. <laughs> um, that's kind of boring though. Maybe killer comments because darling killing. Time for killer comments. So today I'm spotlighting my Instagram followers because I just hit over 1,000 followers, which is cool. Though to be 100% honest, I feel like a pretty big percentage of those people don't listen to this podcast. <laughs> Uh, they just like the content, but they still have thoughts, so they're worth talking about. So as promised, I've shared a sketch I made of the logo, I guess you could call it a logo, of the Cloak and Dagger Company, which we discussed in last episode, episode 8. It was pretty well liked. In fact, I got no negative reviews, but it's sort of a C and a D that makes a circle, and then there's another C overlaid on that, like a smaller concentric circle and then there's a dagger that sits behind the design and I shouldn't be bothering to describe it really just go look at any of the socials because it's it's there and you can just look at it likewise I posted a few pictures of the three-quarter length black cloaks uh, that I like as a style idea for the uniform of the cloak and dagger company one had a suit under it which I thought was kind of cool I like that the three-quarter thing kind of suggests uniform rather than a traveler's cloak. At Aramanth Letters pointed out that this style is actually in use at Portuguese universities, um, one of which they went to because I assume they're from Portugal. And they said that that's where J.K. Rowling actually got the idea for Hogwarts robes because they even have house colors there. I thought that was pretty interesting, um, but also I'm not super thrown off by the idea of this knowledge. Um, something I do want to consider, though, is the colour, black. I happened to see some posts lately that spoke about how there is such a strongly encoded idea that anything dark in colour is bad and light in colour is good, and that we should challenge this idea because it can reinforce racism and also it is just done to death. 
So I want to reconsider the color of my uniforms. I'm a little torn because black is just like a stealthy color, but also our police forces and military forces aren't usually in black. I think in terms of the police, probably it's to seem less threatening, which is why forces like SWAT teams are in black. But in terms of the the idea of stealth, they don't really need to hide because they're police. They should be visible and recognisable because that's what creates this idea that they're everywhere. At Macabre Chronicles started their Kill My Darlings journey and made special mention of my comments about Tolkienism and also kindly offered me a copy of their book. We had a good chat about representation of diversity and things like that. I mean, it was good timing because I also posted a quote from the last episode. The unspoken standard of fantasy is Eurocentric, even so far as using outdated imperial measurements like miles and inches. Why can't we do something different? Several people had thoughts about that quote. At Briz Vegas Home agreed and added that also there seems to be a lot of gun violence imported from American culture too. At TGLS underscore Alicia had a counterpoint saying that I think we are getting a diverse offering nowadays. Not all works from other cultures are translated into English. I thought that was a good point because I was just coming from my perspective as a Western person. Um, At I Will Finish Writing agreed with the original quote though saying As someone from the other side of the world, I yearn to see more fantasy books set in fictional worlds from or inspired by my side of the world. The problem isn't really the availability of these books because there are a lot of them. It seems that readers don't seem to be familiar with them because of the distribution and the language gap. I always told myself to add details of my country in every book I write. I think that last point is great. You should represent where you come from, and your culture in what you write. We're a globalizing world, and I mean you inevitably will anyway, but do it on purpose too. Break some barriers. As always, if you have anything you'd like to add to the conversation, you can do this. You can jump over to the blog at Hayden Rogers, that's R-O-D-G-E-R-S dot net slash killmydarlings, and comment on the blog post for the relevant episode. Remember to sign up for email alerts while you're there, or you're welcome to add your thoughts on Instagram, probably where it goes off the most, Tumblr, Twitter, or Facebook. Just search for Kill My Darlings Podcast and slide into my DMs or comment on a random post. If you like emailing more, send it to killmydarlingspodcast at gmail.com. So, Schools of magic. I guess that's my first question immediately. How would you term specializations of magic? I went with schools probably because I play D&D, but I'm not sold. What are some different ways of saying schools of magic? Anyway, in Whip World, magic is divided into these schools or types. Each type has a name by which you'd refer to someone who does that kind of magic much the same as you might call someone a painter or an actor or a dancer or a singer. They have certain kinds of skills, so they have that title. And you can also hold several of those titles, though usually we attribute one or a select few things to ourselves as identifying strengths, even if we are somewhat accomplished in other fields. 
So, for example, someone might have skills as an actor and a dancer, but they work as a painter and sing in their spare time. So they are more likely to refer to themselves as a painter and a singer. It's worth noting also that these types are terms that have developed out of the advancement of magical knowledge and its role in society. When things are discovered, we love to name them, and we also love to put things that we already know into boxes, particularly if it means you can quantify those things so they can be used commercially. Putting things in boxes is a means of controlling them and using them. The role of magic in society has changed over the years and now is changing quite quickly due to the Industrial Revolution. I also talk about class and the use of the school in society. I imagine this is just one society's makeup of magic schools. Other societies may have bigger proportions of some schools and none of others. So let's get into it. First up are the most common and oldest traditions of magicians. Scapecasters. Scapecasters are those that command the elements. It's a very practical and hands-on type of magic which produces very real physical effects, and as such, it is considered working class for the most part. It is used in a lot of trades and utilities. Often, scapecasting skills used for labor or work are passed down within families, and this creates a cycle where people are taught a set of skills for the jobs their parents have and so are more likely to also go into that work, the family business. Of course, advanced ability as a scapecaster could make someone quite formidable and an important asset to many. So usually they would find themselves moving in upper classes or highly ranked in military forces. Those of useful skill are often found in all ranks of the military. Scapecasters are divided into subcategories by which they would usually be referred to. Kindlers work with fire and could be blacksmiths, furnace operators, firemen, and forest fire rangers. Pommels work with rock and stone and could be miners, masons, construction workers, or in agriculture and land works. Sluice command water and might be found in a water pump station, navy and shipping, or fishing and agriculture. Billows command the air and are useful in air travel, and again shipping and fishing. A ravelier is someone who controls plants, and they work in agriculture, landscape gardening, and land clearing. Spurs control animals, and are used to herd livestock, guide horseback armies, and deal with wild creatures. Lastly, zards are concerned with the weather. This was once a rich practice, which has now been reduced to mainly providing good weather for crops. The old traditions are now kept relatively secret by the Zard monks in the Zardistries. That was one of the most complex schools, so don't worry if that seemed like a lot of different subcategories. Next, we have deep readers. A deep reader uses magic to manipulate and investigate the mind, see possible futures, and locate people and objects. You could relate it to psychic powers. Magic in this area is a relatively modern advancement in magic, as it required a greater understanding of the mind, spirit, and soul to achieve it. It is relatively difficult to master, requires higher education, and isn't a common skill. On top of that, it is not commonly studied because there are few career pathways. However, when it is studied, usually all three of the subfields are learned. 
Those subfields are Rummager. Rummagers can magically extract information from objects and people. They also create false memories and emotions and can plant these on objects or in the mind. You could find basic rummaging skills useful in accounts and admin, or more powerful rummagers have a place in governing, sensitive information, and policing. Waywatchers. A waywatcher is considered an advanced rummager, or an extension of that skill. They use their superior abilities to read possible futures. Corporate espionage, government polling, ruling, and fortune-telling are usual occupations. Fortune-telling is a serious trade, though street vendors still give it a go too. However, if they are too good, they might be investigated. Far-spy. Far-spies are clairvoyants, seeing afar, using telepathy, tuning into someone's activities, and contacting the dead. Policing, intelligence work, mediums, debt collecting, and communications all use far-spies. In general, deep reading is used primarily for upholding the law and investigating crime, especially crime involving other deep readers. It's highly regulated in cities and crimes involving deep reading or unsanctioned practice are punished harshly. Unreading charms and protective enchantments are also increasingly commonplace, though they aren't infallible as these can be overcome in a contest of power by skilled deep readers. Next up is spell weaves. Spell weaves create enchantments which are different to standard spells. Spells are defined by a finite duration. They are designed to end after they have achieved their ends. An enchantment creates an effect indefinitely. Thus, this is a different skill set to all other magicians, regarded as highly powerful and an ancient tradition. However, despite this history, in modern times, there are less powerful spell weaves who enchant things for the domestic level. A broom that always sweeps up at 3pm, a door that only opens to your voice, simple but convenient enchantments that are useful to the average person. So, there is a huge class divide between the two kinds of spell weaves. These are simply known as overweaves and underweaves. Overweaves are often advisors to the highest officers of the land or occupying them themselves. They dedicate their lives to study and the most powerful belong to an ancient global order known as the Overcouncil and are highly revered. Meanwhile, underweaves are part of the working class, still very much valued for their skills but not considered elevated above others. One of the more artistic magicians is the Echo Stitcher. In theory, this is similar to the skills of a deep reader. However, they are an older form of that knowledge which is more tangible because it is based around deceiving the senses with illusions. Creativity is at the core of this magical type, with many finding their own unique methods of casting. Interestingly, it's not considered upper class at all, like deep reading is, but considered street magic at its most basic level. This is partially because it has a bad rap from its role in crime, and partially because it's more often learned as a hobby or art rather than seriously studied. 
Otherwise, it only offers a lower-class career with very few middle and upper-class positions available. Because of its creative flexibility, it's also used in the performing arts to create spectacles and in illusionist firms which create magical concealment for hire. We also have Shapesmiths. A shapesmith focuses on transforming matter with magic or creating magical constructs where transforming one thing into another thing can be a permanent change, anything that is created from magic cannot last forever. A magical construct could be anything from a simple tool to a giant fire-breathing dragon. However, in order to create the latter construct, you need to have a lot of power, probably from some other kind of magical source more powerful than just one person. In fact, shapesmiths are known for their group casting, coming together to create larger constructs. In terms of transmuting matter, there's many levels of skill, but most commonly, a shapesmith focuses on transforming the shape of one thing into another shape, but some can change the matter itself. This magical school is usually learned through apprenticeship under another shapesmith. The learners are known as make fellows, and the teachers change fellows. Becoming a change fellow is certified by the shapesmith guild, Occupationally, shapesmithery is usually contract-based by freelancers or through agencies because of the widespread applications that this field has. It's a well-regarded upper-middle-class field. Lastly, but certainly not least, we have revivists. Revivists are the healers of Whipworld and are revered in the same way that doctors are in our world. Revivists choose to study in one of four colleges of revivistry, These are the College of Body, concerned with physical wounds of the flesh, the College of Mind, concerned with afflictions of the mind, the College of Blight, concerned with disease and poison, and lastly, the College of Death, a much smaller body but highly advanced college of study concerned with reviving the dead and protection from deadly magics, which requires advanced knowledge of all other colleges. Within each college, there are, of course, other specialisations too. Comparing revivists to real-world doctors is also accurate in terms of their standing in society. Because of the complexity of the body, magical healing is not a one-trick-fixes-all situation. In fact, there is still a fair amount of physical work that needs to be done, though there is the aid of magical potions and equipment as well. And that's all the schools of magic that I have. Um, What do you think? What's your favorite? I feel like that was probably a lot of information to drop at once, but I'm interested to know if it was like fairly easy to follow, made sense, and didn't seem excessive. It's sometimes hard in world building to strike the balance between the complexity of reality and the beauty of simple storytelling. I'm just glad I finally got to make this episode, and you can probably look back at older stories now and recognize the school of magic that some characters belonged to. Just before we jump into the short story, I'm going to tell you about another podcast on the That's Not Canon Productions network. This one is just a lot of fun and perfect for all fantasy lovers. It's called Therapy for Monsters. Every week, Tim, who is an actual therapist, sits down with a fictional monster like Gollum or Cookie Monster and therapizes them, complete with funny impressions, which is something we have in common. And of course, because it's on the That's Not Canon Network, 
you can find it in all the same places as you find mine. Now it's story time. This week I tackled another pretty tropey story, but brought into play everything we've spoken about so far, obviously focusing on different kinds of magicians. I also decided to write this one in the first person. Um, it was something I'd meant to do just to shake things up and like try it, and it was great to do. Um, it's it's hard to do without really feeling like you know the voice of the main character, but let me know what you think. The story is entitled Potluck. It took me half an hour to find the red door with no number and the little fish painted under the handle. It was wedged between buildings on either side, as if it didn't belong to either. More like a door that belonged to the street or the walls between places. In my mind, I had imagined a bright red that would jump out at me, but in reality, and especially in the dark of night, it was a completely unremarkable shade. That made sense, of course. No one was supposed to notice this place. I started going over the knocking pattern that Larissa had taught me. Knock confidently, but concealed. It's nine beats. Knock once, count to three. Knock twice, count to two. Once again. I took a deep breath and hoisted my bag more securely on my shoulder. Glancing around the deserted street first... I wrapped out the code on the red door. As soon as I'd finished, the little fish under the door handle came to life, though still flat and painted, and swam off the side of the door, slipping through the slight gap of the frame and into the building. There were a few breaths of silence, filled only by the distant sounds of the city, before footsteps came from inside, clomping down what sounded like stairs. The door creaked open slightly. Holding it ajar was the unfamiliar face of a woman with a very wary expression. She was mostly silhouetted by dim orange light, and all I could make out was her dark umber complexion, darker than my own, and suspicious eyes. "'Are you Renata?' she asked in a gruff voice. "'Yes, that's me,' I replied. A second voice came from inside, one that I recognised. "'It's her, Roz, let her in.' Larissa shuffled Roz to the side and swung the door a bit wider, revealing her friendly face. Hey hun, you made it. We were a little worried. Uh, yeah, sorry I'm late, Lala. I chuckled, a bit embarrassed. I just got a bit lost. Okay, great, you're here, Roz chimed in flatly. Come in, come in. Roz clapped a rough hand on my shoulder and pushed me inside. I noticed her large biceps and the raised scar on her left cheek. Inside there was a small landing and indeed a staircase, but it descended down to another door, rather than upward as I had imagined. Roz clomped back downstairs in front of me and Larissa. Sorry about Roz, Larissa made no effort to talk quietly. She's just edgy because we were worried you'd be nabbed by the cloaks. Glad you're safe. Roz turned around at the foot of the stairs. I'm edgy because I don't like bringing new people into a plan three days before a job, and I don't have a choice. She turned and pulled the door open. Slightly brighter light, the sound of conversation, and a surprisingly delicious smell of some sort of garlicky dish spilled out. 
The source was through another open door on the far side of what appeared to be a large storage room. Larissa and I trailed behind Roz and into the light. Ladies, it's her, announced Roz. Larissa motioned me forward and I walked into the room. It was decorated quite nicely with paintings on the walls, floor lamps, and a wooden lounge set with pale green upholstery. In the centre was a large table with what I guessed was a potluck dinner set on it. Sitting around it were three other women. Well, hi, I'm Jace, said one who looked around my age, maybe in her thirties at most, wrapped in a sky-blue shawl which swallowed her small frame. Her kind expression seemed genuine and her eyes sparkled knowingly. And I'm Andra. Hope you're hungry, said another. Andra was definitely in her forties. She was fastidiously dressed in a dusty pink long-sleeved blouse and had her black curls tied in place neatly with a white bow. She had already started putting food on a plate for me, which struck me as probably the reflex of a mother. Were you followed? asked the last woman, eyes darting behind us to the entrance. She was at least 70, but had no sense of frailty, and was wearing all black, including a turtleneck sweater and a headscarf she had tied around her graying hair. Those cloaks are slippery bastards, she continued. We're fine, Gran, said Roz. That's my grandma, Les Leona, but we call her Gran, or Les, she explained to me. I nodded. Hello, everyone, I'm Renata. I waved to the group, instantly regretting it and awkwardly sticking my hand back down at my side. Thanks for, well, uh, thanks for having me, I guess. I, I don't really know what to say in these sorts of situations or uh, meetings. She seems green, Gran said. I could immediately see where Roz got her bluntness from. She's saving our skins, Gran, said Larissa, placing her hand on my shoulder. Come and sit down and eat something, Rennie. I sheepishly took a seat at the table and Andra passed me the plate of food she'd prepared. Gran leaned over to see what I'd been given. Oh, that's my garlic butter potatoes, she said proudly. They smell delicious, I replied. All right, ladies, let's go through the plan for Renata. Larissa? Roz, standing by the wall, gestured for my friend to take over. Larissa turned to me in her chair. Sure. So, as you know... Roz and Gran helped build the new bank. They know the layout and also have been working hard tunnelling. You're pommels, right? I said, turning to Roz and her grandma. Roz smiled coolly. Turning to face the stone wall, she sank into a kind of lunge, kissed a ring on both her middle fingers and clapped her hands together sharply. Biceps bulging, she rigidly pulled her hands apart, as if holding tight to something I couldn't see. As she did... The stones of the wall shifted and seemed to peel back from the point right in front of Roz. It was like the wall was being pulled carefully apart by the invisible hands of a giant, leaving behind a roughly door-shaped hole. Beyond it, there was a tunnel through the earth which quickly disappeared into darkness. Gran looked on proudly, then turned to me. We've been pommels for generations, she said. Some of the best there are, no doubt. Well, I'm impressed, I replied, probably looking a little too enthusiastic. Andra works at the bank, Larissa continued. She works as an underweave, enchanting protective mechanisms on deposit boxes. You'll have noticed her handiwork at the front door, the fish. I nodded to Andra in recognition. 
Most of her work will come when we bring back box 3048 and have to get through the locks. But she also got Jace in a room with the executive records. So that's how we were able to actually locate the right box. I looked over at Jace, a thought striking my mind. But how did you read the records? Only their rummages can read those records, right? Jace obviously knew what I was hinting at. You're right, in theory. They create the records by placing memories of the information into the blank pages of the books. Then, burn all traces of the original information. As she slowly spoke, she took out a small square of paper and began folding it back and forth. Anyone who can't rummage can't read the records. All they'd see are blank pages. In theory. Her focus was on me, but her hands deftly folded a shape from the paper. And of course, rummages are all registered. It's illegal not to be. And basically all rummages work for the government, trained by the government. So the system is safe. In theory. Jace finished folding and placed a paper bird on the table. I blinked, and suddenly all the dishes of food were gone. In their place, the food had been spooned across the table to form three words. I'm not registered. I jumped a bit in my seat, shocked at the change. Everyone else around the table chuckled a little, apparently expecting this. Jace winked at me and then slapped her palm down on the paper bird, squashing it. In another blink, everything was back to normal. A false thought? I asked, slightly shaken by the invasion of my mind. Correct, she replied, smiling that genuine, kind smile. Larissa rubbed my shoulder comfortingly. And you know me, and what I can do, I'll be doing the sneaking. She turned to the group. And you all know that Rennie is an echo stitcher, like me, just way more talented. What are you talking about, Lala? I objected. Just show them, honey. Larissa replied. I rolled my eyes, but retrieved my paintbrush and art book from my bag. Flicking through the pages, I came to the right image. I took a moment to calm my bubbling nerves and take in the size and shape of the room we were in, picturing the difference between here and there, the image I wanted to create. High walls, light, sandstone columns and carved arches. I began tracing my brush over the image in my book, the group looked around expecting something instant. All they might have seen were almost imperceptible ripples through space. After about a minute, the change began setting in. The room was getting bigger, and now wider, much wider. Columns of sandstone seemed to emerge from the expanding space, which was vague to look at, like you were squinting through hazy eyes after being suddenly awoken. After just a few more minutes, the women... The table and the potluck dinner all appeared to be sitting in the foyer of the bank. Well, 
now is the time to get your sharpest darling killing axe and head over to the blog at Hayden Rogers, that's R-O-D-G-E-R-S dot net slash kill my darlings to leave your thoughts on this week's episode. You can also leave your thoughts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. Just search for Kill My Darlings Podcast or find the links for any of these things in the description. If you'd like to email in, send it to killmydarlingspodcast at gmail.com. And if you like this show and you want to show your support, please consider becoming a patron of the Kill My Darlings podcast on Patreon. Again, just search that or hit the link below. Thanks for listening and I look forward to killing some darlings with you soon. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.